0: I was thinking about choices this week and the impact of the choices that we make because as you come to this section in Isaiah, Isaiah is laying out for all of us a binary choice. He's basically saying you can choose this or you can choose this. You choose. Now, in the process of doing that, he provides rationale. And what he will say in those choices is one choice, if you're honest, is actually foolish. And the other is the very foundation of wisdom. What are you going to choose? I thought about that. I thought about the most cinematic, cinematic choice I think ever put on the big screen. I could say one phrase and immediately your mind would go to it. Do you want the blue pill or the red pill? Remember this? You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. the truth, nothing more. The Matrix. When you watch that movie, it really is an incredibly philosophical movie. There are so many things within that story, within the three-movie trilogy, that if you understand what's being said, and a lot of times we just watch movies for entertainment, that's fine. But this one was actually a philosophical declaration. There are issues in there about choice. Which do you choose? There were issues in there about love. Do you choose love, or do you choose Expediency. There are issues in the movie about the fact that deliverance comes through the death of an individual. But the first movie is about a choice. Are you going to take the blue pill? Are you going to take the red pill? Where we are in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is coming to us and he's coming to the nation of Israel and he's saying, on the basis of everything that you know and for, on the basis of what I predicted 150 years before you're living, and now I'm talking to those of you who come later, which choice are you going to make? And basically he boils it down in the book of Isaiah, much like the movie, and says you have a choice. You can go on in your ignorance believing the foolishness of the system that surrounds you. In the movie it's the matrix. In our life it's the world. Or you can choose the truth and understand that there's that which is beyond the system. Now the problem with the matrix is it's dystopian. It's, it's negative. It's, there's really in one sense no real hope. It seems like that which is the denial, that which is the system, that which is the matrix, is actually the easier way to live. Isaiah is going to come to us in this section of his book. And he's going to ask the question, are you going to choose the system which is dystopian, is destructive, is ultimately horrible? Or you're going to choose that which is outside the system. And unlike the matrix in Isaiah brings hope and a foundation and gives us a sense that there is more than what we see in a glorious way. Isaiah divides his book into three different sections. We looked at the first section, Isaiah 1 through 39, that spoke about the historical context. And the idea was that in history, as you look at what's going on, if you choose to trust God, God is trustworthy. Ahaz didn't, and he faced the consequence. Hezekiah did, and he faced the good consequences of choosing to trust God. But Hezekiah was not the Messiah. He wasn't the ultimate deliverer. We are now in the center section of the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah comes and says, Let me tell you about this God that I'm asking you to trust. And from Isaiah chapter 40 to Isaiah chapter 55, what Isaiah is saying to us, this is what God is like. This is what he wants to do. This is how he's working in the world and in your life. This is how he seeks to deliver. Here is the alternative to choosing to trust God. You can choose to trust the system, but the result is destruction. He will deal with deliverance in the midst of our earthly struggles in chapters 40 through 48. And then beginning also in 48 down through 55, he deals with addressing our spiritual struggles. And then the last part of Isaiah is, this is what we can look forward to. So we're in that middle section where God says, this is what I'm like. And we've used this quote now and, you know, we're almost at the end. But one more week to talk about this quote. The scripture teaches us three essential truths about God. Isaiah teaches us three essential truths about God. We sang choruses, John, great choices this morning. Three essential truths about God. And that is truths we must believe if we are to trust him, if we are going to choose to live outside of the corrupt system and live in hope. Here are those truths. That God is completely sovereign. He is transcendent. That God is infinite in wisdom. He knows. And God is perfect in his love and his purposes and his plans. God in his love will always will what is best for us. God in his wisdom always knows what is best for us. And God in his sovereignty always has the power to bring it about. That's what Isaiah is focusing on. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what Isaiah 40 and 41 and 42 and 43 and 44 is all about. This is our God. This is what he's like. And you remember two weeks ago we said there are five themes that come up over and over again in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55 in this center section. These five themes, one, that God remains faithful to his covenant people even when they fail. God is faithful, we're not. Our hope, our salvation, our certainty rests on him, not on me. My eternal reality rests on who he is, not who I am. Because my life looks like a roller coaster. I just read about a brand new roller coaster that has the highest, fastest drop in the world. Anybody ready? In California. So many times that's what my life looks like, especially spiritually. But God, He's the same. And He's faithful. The second theme is that God provides a deliverer to free His people both physically and spiritually. God will not let us stay in the midst of the struggle. Whether the struggle is our making, whether the struggle is the world's making, whether the struggle is the cosmos making, whatever it may be, God is faithful to his people and he says, I will bring that thing, that person into your life that will bring about deliverance. Physically, temporally, but also spiritually. Isaiah chapter 40 through 46-7 is about the physical delivery. The rest, up to chapter 55, is about the spiritual delivery. The third thing that we see in this section is that God is sovereignly establishing and fulfilling his plan for his people demonstrated in fulfilled prophecy. All of this section of Isaiah was written 150 years before it happened. We're going to read about Cyrus. John read the name Cyrus. Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus 150 years before he existed. Isaiah prophesied about the captivity of the nation of Israel a whole decade, a generation before it would happen. He spoke of their deliverance 100 years, 150 years before it. And it wasn't to give us something to argue about. It was still proclaim that God knows what he's doing. He knows the beginning from the end. He's got it worked out. And he's got a plan, even though at times we don't quite understand it. Let me change that. Even when most of the time, we don't understand it. And then the final theme is this. All other gods are false, destructive, And will fail to deliver. Now all of this section of Isaiah deals with those four themes. And I want to go over this section quickly. Because it sort of repeats it. It takes... Those four statements, those four ideas, and like a braiding of a a girl's hair, it kind of weaves them in and out. And uh, Isaiah picks up one and deals with it for a little while. And then he picks up the other and he deals with it for a little while. Then he picks up the other and he deals with it for a little while. And he wraps it together and he creates this cord that proclaims that God is a God of the universe and working out his purposes in our life and nowhere else can we find that hope? Well, in doing that, I think Isaiah chapter 44 is the chapter that summarizes it best. It begins and ends talking about God's sovereignty and faithfulness. And in the middle, it says, here's the foolish choice. Here's the one that doesn't work. And as you work your way through this whole section, what Isaiah is declaring to us is this. We must make a choice concerning the bedrock of our lives. What dominates your thinking? What dominates your perception? What dominates your choices? What dominates the direction of your lives and what we do each day? What is it that we are living for? What is the center of our lives? Because for Isaiah, it is a binary choice. You have two choices, God and everything else that doesn't work. And Isaiah comes to us and says, what's your bedrock? What are you living for? What controls your choices? When you wake up in the morning, what is the direction that you are moving in? And when you go to bed at night, what is the direction you've evaluated the day? In conformity to that direction. What's your bedrock? What are you living for? And see, the problem with asking that question is we are so self-deceiving. We will gather together as God's people, and I believe we are God's people, and we are a family, and we are a body in Christ. And most of us gathered here are believers, and we'd say, God is the center of my life, and yet we live like everything else is. And our hearts deceive us. Isaiah wants us to examine our hearts and our minds and ask the question, what drives us? What keeps us going? What makes us a spiritual, energized bunny that keeps going and going and going? Now, the first thing that Isaiah is going to say, actually, in this case, it's sort of in the middle of this chapter. It begins in verse 9 and goes down to verse 20. He's going to say, you know what? You can choose to depend upon the man-made gods of the cosmos. You can choose to live within the system. You can choose to choose the blue pill and never know really truth. And in order to make that point, what he does is he tells a very interesting story. It begins in verse 12 when he says, The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with a hammer. He forges it with the might of his arms. He gets hungry and he loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures out the form that this gold is laid on and he roughs it out with his chisel and he uses his compasses and he makes it in the shape of a man or or something else. And they cut down the cedar that made the, the form that they put the gold on that became their idol. And then he goes on to say, and they planted the, the trees that became the wood that became the form that the idol was made out of and the gold was placed over. And he says, and you know what? They take some of that wood that's in the forest and they, they take it and they use it to burn and, and make their food with it. And some of it they use to form their gods. And in the end, what Isaiah says that's foolish. Who in the world would worship a God that they've made with their own hands? We look at that and we say, oh, those foolish ancient people. But those that read Isaiah, those who are scholars, will look at this and say, Isaiah just didn't understand pagan worship. They weren't worshiping the idol. They were worshiping the principles, the idea, the, 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 the personification behind the idol. And Isaiah's response, if you read carefully, is, no, I understand what's going on. You see, what Isaiah is declaring is this. Anything else that is a God in our lives is man-made and subject to the same struggles and difficulties that exist in the cosmos. All other gods but God are man-made. And what he says here is you have a choice. You can choose to see the world through what you observe. Through imperialism. Through rationalism. Now those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But they are not the ultimate. Because we are limited to what we can see. We are limited to the struggle of good and evil. We are limited to seeing the constant cycles of of birth and life and death and birth and life and death that just go on and on with no sense of hope, with no sense of outcome, with just this continually on and on and and what seems like just to be worthless and useless. We can observe the frustration of our world that, that things are just constantly in conflict. Try to view God and try to view the universe through that. Or Isaiah says you can accept revelation to believe that there is a God who we cannot know simply through creation who has revealed himself. But even more, Isaiah is saying you have a choice. You can have either a materialistic God, a God made of the things of this world, Or a God that transcends. A God that is not made of this world, but has made this world. A God who is not subject to the cosmos. But subjects the universe, the cosmos, to himself. Now, the pagans, they had their gods. And we understand that the ancient false gods were simply personifications of the same concepts we deify and worship today. We worship the same things. We just call them by different names. We think we become advanced because we no longer personify them. But beloved, the same things that existed 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, are exactly the same things we believe can be the bedrock and the foundation and the purpose and give meaning to life. Try some of these on. you probably heard of the gods Venus and Epaphrodites. And the mythology is behind them if you studied it in probably about eighth grade. Those were the personifications. But see if anybody worships this beauty, sensuality, fertility, sexuality. Now, we don't use the gods' names. But oh, do we worship this in our society? I don't understand the Cardassians. The only thing they seem to have is some beauty. They're pretty ladies and some money. And yet we worship for what they, we worship what they stand for. And really believe if we get that, our lives will be full. That if we have and look just the right way, if we enjoy just the right kind of experiences, our life will be full. I wonder what the Cardassians are going to be like 40 years from now. And what happened to that God? How about another God? They called it Cupid. Cupid. We call it romance and love and relationships. If I just marry the right guy or just marry the right girl, if I just have the right kind of family dynamics, if if I can just find the, the right kind of romance that makes me feel so good, my life will be right. If that's so, why is divorce so rampant? If that's so, why are people afraid to commit in relationships? Now, we use a different name. We use Hallmark. But it's the same thing. Let me ask you do you really think that relationship is your hope? Do you really think that if you can just get your kids to love you in a certain way or get your spouse to love you a certain way or whatever, that that will fulfill your life for a season? How about another God? Bacchus and Diana. What we call it today is entertainment, enjoyment, and pleasure. the belief that if I can just fill my life up with enough distractions, I'll be happy. You've seen the bumper sticker, you know it. He who has the most toys in the end wins. We call this God today Nintendo or Sony or Facebook. Same thing. How about another God, Zeus? What Zeus represented was power and authority and control. Again, we use a different term today. We may look at those who have power to control in political ways or power to control in physical ways or whatever it may be, but it's still the same God. Hermes and Plutus. This is probably one you don't know as well, but oh, we worship these today. Wealth and possession. Getting more. Keeping more. A bigger house, a faster car, a a cooler computer. If I just get more, if I just have more, my life will be whole. Nike in Victoria. You didn't know Nike was a god, did you? Nike is the god of success. If I just make it in my career, if I just make it in athletics, if I just make it in art, if I just make it in academics, if I just make it, if I get to be successful, but there's always somebody who's more successful, there's always somebody who's wealthier. There's always somebody with more authority or who has bigger toys. And if, they, if there's nobody left that has something bigger, that's the place of greatest despair because what else is there? And then Apollo. Apollo was the god of knowledge and education. Now, I want to be careful. The things on the right side in and of themselves can be good until they become a god. Every false good, I mean, every, every good can become a god and can control and dominate our lives. Take a look at your life. What dominates your thinking? What do you wake up in the morning to do? What do you go to bed at night wondering if you've done enough? What is that core? And what Isaiah is saying here is they're all man-made. They're all temporal. They're all limited. And They will all fail. See, the reason why Christianity is such a great message is there's a reasonableness about Christianity that declares a reasonable hope. All the others are guaranteed to fail. All made gods, whether ancient or modern, will disappoint, destroy, and corrupt. And that's what Isaiah says. As you come to Isaiah chapter 44 and right in the middle of that section when he declares verse 9 all who make idols are nothing and the things they treasure are worthless those who would speak up for them are blind they are ignorant to their own shame who shapes a god and casts an idol which can I'm sorry which can profit him nothing he has he and his kind will be put to shame Craftsmen are nothing but men, that all who come together and take their stand, they will be brought down to terror and infamy. If you choose any other God, that is where you are left. Because I guarantee you, with every other God, it is never, ever enough. Enough. You are never beautiful enough. You are never successful enough. You are never wealthy enough. You are never owning enough stuff. You are never powerful enough. You are never anything enough. And it drives us to to frenzy and to to fear and to shame when I will give up my morality. I will give up all that is right in order to possess. Possess. God says you can make that choice. Those of you here who are beginning your, your adolescent and adult life, you've got a choice in front of you. The world is going to tell you, you know, get the, the, the highest education because that will give you a certainty, a hope, a, a, a bedrock. It is a good thing, but it cannot be the God of your life. Or if you get that right girlfriend or that right boyfriend, all will be well. No, it won't. Or if you're just successful in terms of making the right amount of money, your life will be just peachy keen. There's a choice before you. Those of us that are in the midst of the the rat race, the heyday, are you tired? Are you frustrated? Are you overwhelmed with the anxiety or the shame of the things that you've given up in order to pursue this false God? God says you have a choice. And those of us like me, who mostly look back, And I say, where have I poured my life? What will last? What really had value? And what will I do with the years I have left? God says you have a choice. All those others will lead to shame and emptiness and fear and frustration. Or... Isaiah says you can choose to trust in the covenant-keeping God who is above and beyond all. This is where Isaiah gets into his theology proper, where he says this is the God that needs to be the bedrock and foundation of your life. This is the reasonable life. This is the life that really does have hope and purpose and gives meaning. This is a life that gives security when all is falling apart. This is the life you choose by faith, not by feeling. You choose to believe either that the God of Revelation is true or not. And if you choose to believe the God of Revelation is true, then the question comes, how then should I live my life? And Isaiah builds it, and we're going to go through this quickly, but when you're reading through Isaiah chapter 44 and you read through those first five verses, the first part of that braid is this that God remains faithful and committed to those to whom he chooses to relate, even when we fail. You see, the false gods, you stumble, you're out. You say the wrong thing on TV and you're a politician, you're out. You get old and wrinkly and gray apart from Botox and tux, you're out. You get all the money in the world and you have nothing really to show for it, you're out. God says, those who are in relationship with me, even when you struggle in your faithfulness, God stays faithful. God remains there in your life doing his work, constantly calling you back to return. And Of course, the first question is, do I have that relationship? Have I accepted that, that relationship that God offers in Christ? And if I do then how am I in ways not living out that wonderful relationship? Covenant that is mine. Because God will be faithful even when I've really messed it up. That's what verses 1 through 5 says. He comes and he says, I'm committed to you, Israel. I'm committed to you, Jacob. I know the things you've done but I'm not walking away. The second thing that Isaiah declares for us is that God is the maker and sustainer of all. He is fully and eternally self-sufficient. God says, as you begin reading there in verse 6, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first. I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. There is no one like me. I'm not part of the cosmos. I'm not part of the universe. I made it. I determine it. I direct it. I have a plan that started at the beginning and will have an end. And my plan for my people is that they would have joy and that they would have hope and that they would have love and that they would have all the things they long to have. And the more we live in faithfulness now, according to the standards that he established, the more we enjoy what will ultimately be ours. God is the only one who is sovereign, beginning to end, first to last. Was there before creation, will be there to remake creation. Therefore, therefore, He is not limited. He doesn't need us. He welcomes us. He doesn't need our worship like the pagan gods do or like those things we constantly run after that constantly need more and more. God says, I've chosen you. Respond as you see my graciousness in your life. That's the God we serve. He goes on to say, God has a plan for his people that is so wonderful, we don't need to fear. Now, listen, I'm not being Pollyannic here, I don't think. I know the struggles. I know the pain of this life. This week, I was more tempted to say, whatever, than I've been in a long time. This week just hurt. I'm not sure all that it was. There were a lot of things that were going on. Nothing, you know, not Cindy and I or the kids or anything like that. Just, just kind of the world. Just disgusted. But you know what? In the midst of it, there's a hope. In the midst of it, I know that God will deliver his people. There is a temporal deliverance. When God comes alongside and encourages and lifts us up and gives us a new perspective and, you know, as you're in the midst of prayer and you just sense his presence or a particular passage or a particular word or a friend calls or a story is told and you just sense, God, you are there. Thank you. God says, I have a relationship with him that nothing can break. God says I have an ultimate plan that I can't even fully imagine. That's what he talks about as he goes down and he continues there in Isaiah chapter 44 and he he talks about what he has planned for them and what he has coming for them. And he talks about, I am the Lord who has made all things. I am the one that shall be with those who are in Jerusalem. I am the one that through my deliverer will say, let Jerusalem be rebuilt. Let Israel be restored. Let my people be called back from wherever they've been scattered. I have a purpose and a plan for your life, just as I did for the nation." And we can trust in that. And though we may hurt and there may be pain, we don't need to choose despair. And then finally, God has chosen and provides his deliverers to redeem us now and forever. There's a name that comes up that to us doesn't mean much, but boy, to the people in the time of the Babylonian captivity meant a lot. He says in Isaiah chapter 44 and beginning in verse 28, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please? As I mentioned before, Isaiah made this prophecy 150 years before Cyrus even existed. Cyrus would be the one that comes to the nation and says, You can go back to the land. You can go back and rebuild the wall, Nehemiah. You can go back and rebuild the temple. See, God sometimes brings in those temporal deliverers. Ask God. When you're hurting, when you're in the midst of the struggle and you've come to him and said, Lord, I know the truth of who you are. Lord, can you just bring someone alongside? And God would raise up Cyrus for the nation. God brings those deliverers in our lives, but ultimately, he brings Christ. Next week begins Lent. I know that because Tuesday is Foshnach's Day. And it is a time to remember not just those temporal deliverers, but the eternal one the one that makes all of this possible for me to experience. Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, the servant that would come. And as we go through this whole process of Lent, those are the passages we're going to look at. Next week in the back, I'm going to have some little stones available. Remember last year we did the cut nails? This year they're just little stones. Put them in your pocket, put it in your purse. Put it on your dresser just to remind you of the stone that was rolled away. And what we're going to do is take a look at the one that God sent. That we could have a relationship with him that begins now and lasts forever. Now, we have a choice. Where do you want to rest your life? What is the commitment of your life? Is it one of those false gods? Take a look. What drives you? And the fact is, all of us have some element of that in our lives. The second question is, how can I more and more in my life learn to depend upon the God who loves me, who directs me, who guides me, who sustains me? If that is true, and oh, we're going to sing it again this morning, how does it change the way I live? How does it change the way I treat my children? How does it change the way I treat my work? How does it change the way I treat my possessions? How does it change how I live? Beloved, which pill? are you going to choose? Father, thank you for the truth we find in Isaiah. May we be those who choose to live a life that is based upon your revelation. Father, may we choose to live a life that is based upon a sovereign God who chooses to be imminent and present in our lives, who chooses to provide a means of salvation through the death of your Son and We invite any here who aren't certain of their relationship with you to come and speak to me or someone else to know how they can know for sure. Father, those of us that have that understanding, Lord, help us to be honest about our lives and to look at the ways that we live, not serving you but serving our false idols. Help us be honest about the frustration and the shame the fear and the despair. Father, help us to take that and find our hope, our certainty, our assurance in you for your honor, for your glory. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.